Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Gianna Malillo, Assistant Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Recently released vaccine data from both Pfizer and Moderna indicate encouraging steps forward in the global fight against coronavirus disease 2019, or COVID-19. But both vaccines are still a long way from becoming readily available to the wider public, prompting the question, who should be prioritized once doses become available? To provide guidance on this front, the National Institutes of Health and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention requested the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine to construct a framework assisting U.S. policymakers and global health communities to plan for an equitable allocation of a COVID-19 vaccine. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we speak with Dr. Jewel Mullen, the Associate Dean for Health Equity and Associate Professor of Population Health and Internal Medicine at the University of Texas at Austin, Dell Medical School. Dr. Mullen is the former Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and a member of the National Academies Committee, which developed the framework for vaccine allocation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Mullen. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about your work? Sure. So in my role, I am responsible for assuring sort of a social justice framework uh, that really reinforces the importance of assuring an opportunity for all people to be as healthy as possible informs the work that we do in education, in our research, in our clinical work, and in the ways in which we engage with our community. To begin, could you just explain a bit of the background as to how the National Academy's framework for equitable allocation of a COVID vaccine was developed? The the thinking behind uh, calling for a study committee to address equitable allocation of vaccine for the novel coronavirus was spurred in part by a recognition of the the racial and social inequality that we have seen uh, throughout the pandemic. And while some of the the health disparities that we have seen um, across African-American, Hispanic, Native American, and other groups, Um, including the um, elderly in long-term care facilities, are not new. I think it's been striking to understand the degree to which a lot of that excess excess morbidity and mortality is linked to social conditions and the uneven opportunity for people in those groups to be as healthy as possible. As healthy as possible in this case protecting themselves from developing COVID-19 or having um, worsened outcomes associated with COVID. Therefore, in thinking about vaccines as what we would understand at the beginning would be a limited resource and thinking about how we could as public health and as a society most readily, readily address those disparities fairly, the CDC and NIH um, 
asked the National Academy of Medicine to convene a group to consider what equitable allocation would look like. One of the things that I like to say is that the very fact that uh, this nonpartisan, non-governmental agency, the National Academy, was asked to do that by the nation's public health leader organization, CDC, and medical science organization, NIH, is really an important reminder that the, the policymakers and the scientists in those two organizations really wanted to focus on health, well-being, and fairness uh, ac across our society. And, and the reason I call that out is because I think it's important for people to hear reminders that there are policymakers and, you know, some who might be suspected as just being politicians who actually care about their well-being and care about fairness. Now, the framework outlines four vaccine allocation phases. Which criteria were used to prioritize the recipients in each phase? So we, we worked through um, some very systematic ways of thinking about what, um, what needed to be considered for allocation. And, and we thought about those with regard to individuals, communities, but also society as a whole, because we wanted to think about allocating vaccine in a way that was informed by different kinds of risks. So there were certain risks we took into consideration. The risk that people faced um, of acquiring infection, the risk of having severe, a severe case of COVID or dying from it, a risk of negative societal impact, which meant if, if certain people get sick, does that put the rest of society, the rest of the public at risk as well? And then the, the risk of someone spreading the, the infection to someone else. So keeping those risks in mind, we then also said, as we create a criteria and a framework, we want to lead with equity and ethics. Those are our guiding, those are our North Stars, our pulling us forward. And, and we therefore uh, worked through a set of ethical principles and a set of procedural principles. The ethical principles being maximizing benefit, equal concern. No person, no group is more important than another and mitigation of health inequities. And then the procedural principles of fairness, transparency, and that all the work would be evidence-based. So what I'll, what I'll say is the, the notion of maximizing benefit takes into consideration that we want to protect and promote the public health and well-being. So while we think about individuals, we also think about all of us collectively. And, and while maybe nobody wants to walk around saying equal concern, maximizing benefit, uh, fairness, uh, the, the mindset in all of this that we really wanted 
policymakers at the state and local level to consider was that when they're on the front lines, they're going to be met with expectations from so many groups who wonder who will get the vaccine first, why that person or group, why not me? So to offer a process for thinking about how to allocate, we have a better chance of letting people know that these are not arbitrary decisions. How can barriers to equitable vaccine distribution, such as historic distrust of the government among certain minority populations, be overcome, in your opinion, or be mitigated to ensure this vaccine gets to those who do need it most? Re removing barriers to um, really having the vaccine get to and be accepted by groups that have been affected by health inequities um, hinges on um, establishing trust, building partnerships, and um, engaging in clear, accurate communication. And that communication needs to be two-way communication, not one way. So it's not just a matter of crafting a message for a group. It's a matter of sharing information with a group and then saying, what's the best way for us to communicate this more broadly? Part of doing that means that we can't make assumptions about why people might be concerned about a vaccine. Now we can list lots of, of reasons and concerns around medical experimentation or discrimination um, or general mistrust or uh, you know, the, the general increased prevalence of vaccine hesitancy in our country and in the world anyway. But we can't make assumptions at the individual or community level about what concerns are operative. So that requires giving up a little bit of our um, tendency to craft a public health message that's just loaded with recommendations to get a shot, to helping people understand their personal risk, their risk of, of an infection, and, and how a vaccine might help them. So even with flu shots, for example, I, you know, I've talked with patients over the years who didn't really see themselves as being high risk for influenza or having a severe case um, and didn't understand the risks that increased over age. Well, those kinds of conversations around why is it important to even worry about the flu in the first place could also be, why is it important for, you, for us to worry about COVID in the first place before we move on to, here's a vaccine and you should get it. Along the way, taking the time to hear what's most important to the people that we're talking to gives us a chance to discuss what's most salient to them. For example, you know, I've worked in circumstances where in which we have recommended um, that we're available to give people shots, but we were actually not able to do so without charging them, which meant we sent the missed message, which eroded trust because cost was a barrier. So we have to take those things into consideration too. We might say we have access to a vaccine, but people have no way to get to it. That erodes trust as well. And so people need to have trust in the system 
as much as they need to have trust in the vaccine product. I wish I knew what we could do around all of the misinformation that there is on social media. But in terms of you know, mitigating some of that, I do believe that public health has a, an opportunity to work more closely with um, different medical societies, professional organizations, community leaders, patients, to also help be trusted messengers for the right information. Kind of similar to what you just mentioned, the framework states public communication from the federal to the local level must pay particular attention to continuous community engagement, engagement across multiple channels, timeliness, and trustworthiness. So what could happen if different levels of government exhibit different levels of urgency or don't see eye to eye when it comes to who should be prioritized once a vaccine becomes available? Mixed messages will confuse people and raise their suspicion at a time when we're actually trying to provide them with what we want them to know to make good, healthy decisions for themselves. We do a disservice when uh, we don't have coordination across our different jurisdictions. And, and you know, having been a, a, a state health official, I know that anything that we say or do in our own state or that someone says in their own locality doesn't just sit there. There's, there are too many ways for information to be tweeted, Facebooked, reported in one way or another to broader audiences. So we should never assume that what we say in our own jurisdiction sits there. So one of the things that I have found to be helpful is to see regional collaboration. So even when we understand that we have governors or public health officials, hospital officials and others who are aligned in their messaging, to assure that at the, at the regional levels, say governors can also say, can we coordinate a message? For example, I worked in Connecticut. Well, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New York. I mean, we all shared borders. We all shared media outlets. And people commuted from one state to the other to work sometimes. So we have to remember that in our leadership, we're leading people whose lives span more than one state. So that kind of coordination is, of messaging is really key. It's also important to remember that there's no one size fits all, particularly when you're a leader for populations that span rural, urban, and suburban, because the, the ways in which we, we recommend that people care for themselves are gonna vary. What, what one might be able to do in, in a city with lots of public transportation, uh, health facilities and pharmacies close by is not the same as what somebody who has to drive 20, 30 or 40 miles to access services is. So we can't make recommendations that are unrealistic or impractical for portions of our population. Working with people at the community levels, they will help remind us of that. They will help us stay realistic. They will help us assure that the, the work that we do to communicate 
is actually going to produce something effective. An article published in JAMA on October 14th pointed to potential legal risks when it comes to using race as an explicit factor in determining vaccine allocation. Do you or the framework's authors anticipate any legal battles arising as a result of the implementation? I can't speak for the authors. I, I personally, in having read that um, article, um, appreciate their, their perspective and I'm not concerned. As people look at the, the committee's report, they'll see that we did not uh, explicate race as a criterion. And as the paper that you're mentioning um, noted, looking at the social characteristics of an area and, and thinking about people and community social vulnerability affords an opportunity to factor in um, that uh, oftentimes the, the people who are most impacted by COVID also live in environments that have other social needs um, associated, whether or not they be um, crowded housing, ac uh, access to healthcare, access to transportation, um, income, etc. And we already know that many of the people who live in those communities tend to come from uh, racial and ethnic minority groups. So using race by itself as a criterion, we could also acknowledge didn't fully characterize the reality that just because you are a member of a racial or ethnic minority group, um, it's not your race or ethnicity that uh, makes you at risk. It's those other social factors. So uh, understanding that that is how we wanted people to think about the different phases for vaccination and consider the, the social circumstances and environment that are so closely linked to risk among some people in racial and ethnic groups was enough. And, and someone who uh, might think, wait a minute, wait a minute, but race is in there, ought to also consider that the application of something like the social vulnerability index can also be done in communities that are relatively homogeneous. So if you are in a, in a largely white and poor, for example, community, all those other social factors can also, will also point out that it's once again, those risks and um, that say your occupation or your living circumstance or your access to resources, which put you at greater risk. So uh, if we go back to considerations like fairness and equal concern for all people, social vulnerability is one of those ways that those who might say, wait, is there discrimination in here? To not have to think about that because we're looking at the whole person or the whole community and not just an individual factor. Early on in the pandemic, it was evident individuals with more resources like national sports teams or celebrities did have greater access to the COVID tests. Are you at all concerned that despite this framework, those with 
greater means will again have more access to a vaccine? One of the reasons that I do work in health equity is because I believe in fairness and justice and all those ethical principles that I talked about earlier on. And so, yes, I'm concerned because um, that um, more ready access or preferential access to um, a commodity or a, or a good is something that we see play out. And, and so from the perspective of how to minimize that or how to mitigate the potential inequities in there, what we need to do as practitioners, as healthcare providers, as policymakers, public health leaders, is to set, is to identify where the opportunities are for intentional preference and where the opportunities are for sort of unintentional or unintended um, access to people who maybe aren't at higher risk. So intentional. What we would hope that this framework would help people continue to apply the ethical principles in a way that the risk and vulnerability, um, protection of society by saying we need to protect our healthcare workers because they protect us, protecting of older adults and others who are in congregate settings um, where they are at very high risk, need, that those need to take priority. One would hope that every, at every jurisdiction that will happen. Some of the other things we talked about, such as addressing vaccine hesitancy or in communicating to have communities partner with us to increase vaccine acceptance and making sure that people can get access to the vaccine when it's available is a, a way of assuring that we don't see unintended allocation in places where we thought would think, oh, that's late. those are later phase people, they don't need it it's soon. If, if the people most at risk that we would hope would be vaccinated in an earlier phase don't get it, then healthcare and public health people are not gonna just sit on the vaccine, right? Part of making sure that equity is upheld is doing all we can to support distribution and administration to those most at risk first. Otherwise, it, it becomes much easier for people to say, well, it's not being used, so let's give it to that group. But we, you know, we are in, a, in a, a society where people with lots of resources have figured out how to get a hold of something sooner. And that's where really good collaborative policy making and rollout at the state and local level, even at the regional level, can uphold a system of fairness across the country. We have two uh, pharmaceutical companies that have released encouraging results from their vaccine and a new president is elected. I was just wondering if you could share your thoughts on the next steps for implementing this framework in the US or just vaccine allocation in general when it comes to the pandemic? 
I'm, I'm really excited that no matter where we are right now, we still have the chance to do more and do things um, even more effectively. And so let's just start with what you just said. Now we're hearing really promising news about two vaccine candidates. Well, so here's a really good time to keep talking about what has been done and sharing with the public. These were not fast-tracked, cut-corner um, efforts so that you know, we go back to reinforcing the notions of safety so that there is public acceptance of the vaccine. And so to share as much information about how the science is evolving and the success, to help reassure a public that has been very frightened by words like warp speed, okay? At the same time that if we think about the framework, since we are also hearing for both of these candidates, they will be in limited supply at the beginning to reinforce the messages about who is it's recommended get the vaccine first and why to uphold the, the societal or create the societal belief that there really are some principles around equity behind the way the vaccine will be distributed. And then from that to really say for everybody who has been calling for a more coordinated system from the federal to state level, here's their chance to be a part of it. It's one thing that to have a leader who is saying, yes, this is how we're going to do things. People need to be on track. State leaders need to be on track with the messaging and with the coordination. And I'm expecting um, that that's what we're going to see more of now. So pretty much everything that we've just talked about has a chance to be to unfold in a more coordinated way. If I may add one thing, that also means that when we're thinking domestically about our coordination, we, we have the reminder that we're part of a global community you know, we, we might, you know, have, you know, oceans that separate us from others or some borders, but the pandemic is a global pandemic and we also get to strengthen our global coordination in this work. Well, those are all the questions I had, but is there anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to include or do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? The public, the public health community, the medical community, all have been waiting uh, to see vaccines become part of the armamentarium for stemming this pandemic. It will be really, really important us, for us to remember that the vaccines are part of an armamentarium. And it's so key to remember that for no matter how much more sophisticated we want our approaches to be. Simple things and easy things are still important and underrated. So even as we're getting ready to receive vaccines, I hope that more people will also reinforce and adopt the behaviors around keeping appropriate distance between themselves and others, wearing masks, and practicing good hygiene.
and, and because all those fundamental measures, you know, they cost a whole lot less than warp speed and they're a lot quicker to adopt than waiting for vaccines to come out. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us, Dr. Mullen. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. 